All right, everybody. Thank you, uh, Pastor James, for the invite. Thank you, uh, I don't know what to call you, SIBC Way Church, right? Uh, I really appreciate uh, the invitation. Um, I consider it a privilege uh, to worship with uh, the people of God from all over, uh, from different places in Seoul and, and here in, uh, in this particular context and location. And um, especially, this is the very first Sunday of 2020, right, and the very first Sunday of the decade, so it's, it's definitely a privilege for me to present the Word of God to you today. Um, as, SA, as SIBC and the Way Church have been integral partners um, of AIM, the Association of International Ministries that Pastor James was referring to, um, of the network, I have been keeping up a little bit with some of the developments of your merger, uh, just like little snippets here and there. So when Pastor Dan stepped down, I mean, that was just a huge shockwave, uh, for many of us, um, that was very unexpected. But um, and then finding out that you guys are merging, the two churches are merging together, um, and have chosen to do that. That came as really wonderful news uh, to me and to many of us um, in in the community. And so we're really happy for you guys, really praying for you guys. And and I know this is not an easy endeavor by any means, but this is uh, something that really honors God. And uh, and I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit. So. Pastor James asked me to speak a couple months ago, and he mentioned uh, the theme of unity. And so I prayed about it, thought about it, and I thought it might be good to talk about marriage. Okay, marriage. Um, and not just for what seems to be the obvious application to your context, but also for the greater significance of what marriage points to. Okay? And so we're going to dive into this famous passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in chapter 5. Now, just as a disclaimer, much of this material that I'm going to present to you, I first uh, read it through an author named Frank Viola, um, but this is actually stuff that's been taught from very early on by Augustine and Aquinas, and so this is very steeped in uh, church history. And so uh, the things that I'll, I'll be talking about, it may seem new to you, it may be like, whoa, that's kind of weird, it's kind of crazy, um, but it's actually been around a very long time. So... The theological backdrop, okay, of all of this that I'm presenting is before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, okay, before that. Uh, we have to understand that the Genesis 3 paradigm for our understanding of the Christian life, um, it is not ultimate, okay, it is not ultimate, meaning if we start the story with our sin and our fallenness, which is often how we understand Christianity to, to be, then it's not complete in itself. Now, that's not in no way diminishing the gospel at all. But the story of our humanity, the story of God's work in this world doesn't start with Genesis 3. It starts with Genesis 1 and 2. And so salvation and restoration, as important as it is, as huge as it is, these are not the primary purposes of our existence. We don't exist for salvation. We don't exist for restoration. That's a big part of it, but that's not the whole thing. There will be a day when our salvation is complete. There will be a day when all things will be restored. So what then? What do you do then? It's like when the dog chases after the car and it catches up to the car. What does it do? You know, it's like, well, okay, what then, right? So God had an intention before time, an eternal purpose, if you will. 
that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 3. And so arguably, uh, God, before time, and this is what I'm going to present to us today, God, before time, he wanted a bride for his son. Okay, he wanted a bride for his son, a counterpart, a creature for his outpoured passion and love who would reflect that love back to him. And so a divine romance, if you will. Uh, let me reread our passage for today. And I'm going to start a little bit earlier, in verse, starting with verse 21. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and following goes like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the overarching command that is given to the people of God. And then verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay? Amen. So, um, in this passage here, Paul's starting off with Mutual submission. This is a, a, a teaching that I go through with uh, all the couples that I counsel for, for uh, their weddings and for their marriages. Um, premarital counseling, sorry. And, um, and so Paul's starting here with mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not just one person submitting, it's both. Okay? Submit to one another. In our relationships with one another... When Paul says this, he's saying this, 1 verse 21, before he's even talking about marriage. So this is meant for all the people of God to submit to one another, all of us, out of reverence for Christ, okay? Um, now, this is not an easy endeavor. This is not an easy thing to do. Uh, I am from America, okay? I was born in America, raised in America, lived there almost my whole life for 40 years, and I'm 46 now. Um, so, you know, I, I understand America, right? And I understand American culture. And as an American, we don't submit to anybody, right? We just don't submit to anybody, right? And that's just generally as a culture the way we are. We don't like submission. And not just Americans. Most people in the world, I, I would say almost all people in the world, they don't like this. No one likes to submit because submission makes us feel weak, it makes us feel lesser. It makes us feel smaller. It makes us feel insignificant. And yet, this is what Jesus did. Jesus submitted himself, right, to the point of death. And thus, in this same way, we are called to lay down our lives. We are called to lay down our rights for one another, 
okay, just as he did. And then a few verses later, uh, Paul, he talks about loving the other as you love yourself. Now, in this case, he's speaking very specifically to husbands and wives, right? And in terms of oneness, you've got to uh, love the other as you love yourself. Okay, so let me read that part. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. All right? So there's this idea of oneness. You're one. Okay? Now, um, naturally, we read this passage, we read these verses, we hear this, and we're thinking automatically husbands and wives. It's the most natural thing for us to think about because that's how we are relating to this, okay? Uh, Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body. They feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Uh, A colloquial saying that we have in English, happy wife equals happy life, right? That's the concept that's being presented here to us, okay? It started with the Bible, happy wife equals happy life. You make your wife happy or you make your spouse happy, then you will be happy. Why? Because you're one, okay? You're one. But then, right after this, in verse 30, Paul says, for we are members of his body. Wait, wait. So I I thought you were talking about husbands and wives. And, And so now suddenly, we're not talking about husbands and wives anymore. There's a shift. And so Paul is talking beyond husbands and wives now. Um, right after this, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what is he, where is this coming from? Where, where is he getting this statement from? It's actually coming from Genesis chapter 2. Right? Genesis chapter 2. So let me read uh, a few verses in Genesis chapter 2, verse, starting with verse 21. This is at the very beginning, right after God created Adam, It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Okay, so this is the verse that Paul, and this is the context that Paul is pulling this verse from. So going back to Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, we have this quoted here. And we see that in Genesis 2, verses, verse 24, this, this part where it says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, we see that... Um, in this verse, what seems to be about Adam and Eve, okay, because that's the immediate context, it seems to be about Adam and Eve, and to some extent it is, but it's actually talking about Christ and the church, because Paul is using this to talk about Christ and the church, the two becoming one flesh, and I'm going to explain this a little bit, so it's very interesting what's, what's, what Paul's doing here. Christ and the church is the fulfillment of of Genesis 2.24, okay? Christ and the church, we're gonna use our brains this morning, right? there's a lot of stuff here. Christ and the church is the fulfillment of Genesis 2.24. Christ and the church is the greater reality 
that human marriage points to. Okay? This needs to be a shift in our understanding. When Genesis 2.24 happened, when the man and the woman become one flesh, when that happened, it was pointing to the greater reality of Christ and the church. Human marriage is the metaphor for Christ and the church, not the other way around. I used to think that Christ and the church was the metaphor, and that's the way I'm supposed to understand my marriage, okay? But it's actually the other way around. Human marriage is the metaphor for the greater reality, Christ and the church, because a metaphor is the lesser, right? And the reality is the greater, right? And so the greater is Christ and the church, and so we are actually just a metaphor, okay, to help us understand this greater reality larger reality of Christ and the church. And so, for those of us who are married, and those of us who observe marriage, your marriage reflects a greater eternal reality. Think about that for a second. My marriage reflects a greater eternal reality. Whoa. That's like, what? My marriage? Are you sure about my? Yeah, like, it's crazy. Right? How does that make you feel? It kind of makes you feel unworthy. It kind of makes you feel like, well, I need to step up my game. It makes me feel, you know, like all kinds of, it's like, man, privileged, right? The truth is, you're not going to be married forever, right? No one is, okay? Um, The marriage of Christ and the church, that will last forever. That will last forever. Yours Will not. Okay? And so uh, I hate to break any romantic notions that you have. You know, there are these love songs that we hear. You know, we'll live forever, knowing together we did it all for the glory of love, right? I mean, that's an old 80s song, anyways. Um, and so, and so but, but it's not going to last forever. Our, our human marriages, but Christ in the church, that will last forever, okay? And so uh, I hope that doesn't make you sad. Um, better not make you happy. <laughs> My marriage ain't gonna last. No, please. All right. Um, so throughout the Bible, uh, weddings and marriages are all, all, over, all over the place. Okay? So from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, we have a wedding. And then all the way at the end, Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible, we have another wedding. Right? The, the church, the bride, beautifully dressed. Right? Coming down. Okay? The, the Christ and the church. So the whole of Scripture and the whole of our earthly existence, think about this. The whole of Scripture, from beginning to end, the whole of our earthly existence begins and ends with a wedding, a husband and a bride. These are the bookends. This is the larger story. Okay? And so there are important implications of how we are to understand all of life in this regard. Because these are ultimate things that we are talking about. Ultimate things. Life is more relational than it is functional and goal-driven. Right? I mean, because this is what it is. Even the goal at the very end is relationship. It's relational. In the Bible, we see brides everywhere. Right? The first one is Eve. And then just a few chapters later, you get Rebecca. That's a wonderful bride story of how she meets Isaac and then, and then Rachel. And then going further down in history, you get Esther. Okay, all these bride stories. And then 
You come to the New Testament, and in the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the bridegroom by John the Baptist. Very early on, he presents Jesus as the bridegroom in chapter 3, verse 29. It's like, why would he do that? Why would he mention Jesus, this Messiah, as a groom for who? Right? Which isn't made clear at that moment, per se. But then you look at... Uh, the rest of the beginning of, of John, John chapter 2, the very first thing that Jesus does in his ministry is he changes the water to wine at a wedding. Okay, So you have a wedding right there in, Gen- in uh, John chapter 2, which is preceded by John chapter 1. Right? And in John chapter 1, you have kind of a creation story. right? Because in the very first verses of John 1, it says, In the beginning... Right? There was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? It's a, it's a reiteration. It is a retelling of Genesis 1. And so Genesis 1, you have creation. Genesis 2, you have a wedding. John 1, you have a retelling of creation. And John 2, you have a wedding. Okay, and so the Bible is putting something together here and presenting something to us, right? And so... The wedding, the marriage, it is a prominent theme throughout Scripture. Now, going back to Ephesians 5, we are given a couple of images. The one that we've been talking about mostly so far is the bride image, but there's also the image of body, okay? So let me reread a couple of verses for us. In verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body, right, of which he is the Savior. And then reiterating verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves himself, right, um, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Okay, so body is, is very prominent here, body and bride. Um, now, we think of these as images, but what if they're not, what if this isn't imagery? What if this is actually reality? What if this is not a metaphor? Okay, what if this is actual reality? Okay, so think with me now, okay? Let's go back to Eve, Adam and Eve. Where did Eve come from? Right? Came from Adam's side. Eve came out of, out of Adam's body and became his bride. Okay? So before Eve came to be, she was inside the body of Adam, which incidentally, Adam, the word Adam means man, humanity. Okay? She was in there. Okay? So before Eve came to be, she was inside Adam. She was inside him before she was outside of him. She was part of his body. And so the two were literally one. I mean, they were literally, you can't get more literally one than being inside. Okay, they were literally one. All right? And then God took a rib, which literally, is, it's not literal bone. It's like a literal uh, a chunk of flesh, like a part of his side. Okay? God took a chunk of Adam's side and made Eve. Okay? And now outside of Adam, Eve exists. But then right after that, the two came together and became one flesh. Right after that, after Eve was already outside. So she was inside, 
She's created, made outside, and then they become one flesh. Okay? Very important. She was one with him before and after. And so there's an important idea of oneness that is being put forth here. Oneness. There's a sense in which oneness must happen. It needs to happen. As if there is a natural gravitation towards oneness. They belong to each other. Now, how do they become one again? Okay, Adam and Eve in particular. It is through sexual union. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. Now, this is the context of prostitution, but um, Paul is presenting a principle here. Okay, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Okay, he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Okay? And so in marriage, the way you become one is through sex. Okay? It's not just the vows that you make. Okay? But although that obviously is a huge part, but the way you become one is, is uh, primarily through sex in terms of the one flesh. Genesis 2.24, again, the two become one flesh. And so the completion of Adam is found in Eve. Okay, the completion of Adam is found in Eve. So Jerry Maguire was right. You complete me. Okay, it's a 90s reference, all right? Anyways, um, apart from each other, Adam and Eve are incomplete. Okay? They need each other in order to be one, in order to be whole, in order to be complete. When I met my wife, Jane... I felt at home with her. Like, my first date. Like, I just felt at home. I felt like I was at home. You know, there was a comfort there that I was accepted for who I am. I didn't have to put up any pretenses. I didn't have to fake anything. I could just be who I am, and I was accepted. Right? There, there, was, a, there was a sense of completion uh, that was there. And this is what happens in marriage. You, you find that missing piece that you've been looking for, that you've been longing for in your life, okay, on, on a human level. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is called the last Adam. Okay? So we've been talking about Adam and Eve. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the last Adam, or, and he's also called the second man. Okay? So you can think of it as Adam 2.0 in our regular day and age. And so where Adam failed, Christ su- succeeded. All right, in, in all things. Um, the new and revised humanity in Jesus, the second Adam, he is the new and revised humanity. This is why he had to be born of a woman so that he could be human, but also without sin, so that he could represent that original state of Adam in order to start a new humanity. And so at the cross... The new Adam, Adam 2.0, at the cross, a significant part of Jesus went out from him, went out from his side. He was pierced in his side, a chunk of flesh. And what was in there? Well, Scripture says it was water and blood, right? Water 
and blood came out of him. Speaking of animal sacrifice, Leviticus tells us that the life of an animal is in the blood. And then water, particularly water that springs forth, always depicts life. Okay, so blood depicts life, water depicts life. And so we could say that what came forth from Jesus' side was life, similar to when a mother gives birth, water and blood, right, come forth to produce a new life. And so could it be that the church, the church, his bride, in some mysterious way, because this is a profound mystery, could it be that the church, his bride, was in him the same way Eve was in Adam before she came forth from his side in some mysterious way? And could it be that the church came forth from his side and came into official existence on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Right? This is a profound mystery. Okay? I don't fully understand it because it's a mystery <laughs> that's meant to be profound. And so if this is true then the two must become one again, right? Just like with Adam and Eve. Eve was in him, she came out, and then she, they were brought back together in oneness. Same with the church. The church comes forth from Christ in his sacrifice, blood and water, and the two must become one again. If the church was in Christ before and it is now outside of him, then there is a natural longing for the two to become one again. I mean, literally one. Literally, in every way. Christ and the church belong to each other. Jesus wants his bride back. He wants his bride. He wants us. He yearns for us to be made complete with him for the two to become one flesh. And the Bible is all about this. It's all throughout the scriptures. Getting the bride back, building up the bride, making the bride beautiful. Okay, references in the old, for Old Testament Israel, references for the New Testament church. It's all there. Now, obviously, it has not fully happened yet, but it will happen when Christ returns. For now, we are engaged. It's engagement time. We are betrothed to Christ. We have not yet consummated our marriage, but we are still his bride. And so in the ancient Near East, the process of betrothal, the process of engagement was such that uh, the contractual stuff would happen first. Okay, so the contract of, uh, of family agreements, of setting a bride price, all that kind of stuff, that would happen first. And then uh, they would have the marriage ceremony after about one year, okay? And so this is the context of, of uh, Mary and Joseph, actually. Mary and Joseph were betrothed to each other to be married, okay? But they had not yet come together in, in full marriage, okay? And so this, was, this uh, betrothal period, this engagement period, was taken so seriously that if either person slept around during that year, right, then it's considered adultery, Okay, adultery, right? And, and whatever consequences come forth from that. So similarly, as believers, we, the church, his bride, we have undergone the contractual stuff, right? We have 
committed ourselves to the Lord. We have been baptized. We've given ourselves over to him. We've promised ourselves. We've pledged ourselves to be joined with the Lord. We've done the contractual stuff, but we have not yet consummated our marriage with Christ. That comes when he returns. For human marriage, it's the night of the wedding. For Christ and the church, it's when he comes back. And so now, in the waiting, there is a longing for consummation. There's a longing to be consummated with Christ. We want it, and he wants it too. He longs to be united with his bride. And this is the divine romance. And this is a profound mystery, right? And so, like, it's almost heretical to think about it. Almost. Because could it be that the completeness of Christ is found in the church? Nah, we know that God is complete in himself. We know Jesus is complete in himself. We already know that to be true theologically. But what did Jesus subject himself to? when he gave himself over for the church, when he gave life to the church, when he gave himself over to a church to be united to himself, eventually one day, it's like he subjected himself to an incompleteness. That's a mystery. It's staggering to even begin to think about that. That God above, Christ our Lord, would subject himself to that sense of incompleteness. He's missing that chunk of flesh. He's missing that part of his side. His bride is not yet fully with him. So this idea of oneness, it is so crucial. It is so crucial to the entirety of our existence. It is crucial to the existence of us as a church It is crucial to us in our marriages. It is crucial, I would even say, and this is another sermon, it is crucial to the entirety of the cosmic universe, this whole idea of oneness. Okay? And this is what we are called to reflect in our marriages. We are called to reflect this kind of oneness. And so in a certain sense, your marriage is already already a reflection of this greater reality of Christ in the church. By the fact that you are married, by the fact that you have come together, no matter how perfect or how imperfect your marriage is, by, the vir- by virtue of the fact that you are committed, consummated, and living together in love, you are already reflecting this greater reality. For those that are married, celebrate your oneness. Celebrate your oneness. Cultivate that oneness. Okay? And dare I say it, I know, like, you're not supposed to stay, say stuff like this from the pulpit, but as married people, have sex. Really, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's what God designed. And as you do it, you're cultivating this oneness between husband and wife, between you and your spouse, right? In the act of sex, you are reflecting the intimacy of Christ and the church. Now, I know that's like kind of scandalous to think about that. It's like, I don't want to make those associations, right? But, you know, 
This is the way God made things to be. Outside of marriage between a man and a woman, sex cannot reflect this. You have to know this. Outside of marriage between a man and a woman, sex cannot reflect the intimacy of Christ and the church. Within the context of marriage between a man and a woman, it can. And the reason that it cannot, if it is not in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, is because there is no covenant. There is no covenant. There is no exclusive giving over of the self to the other. Okay? When it's any kind of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Mary Calderon, uh, she was a main contributor to sex education uh, in the United States way back, like, 40s, 50s. She says, The girl plays at sex for which she is not ready because fundamentally what she wants is love. And the boy plays at love for which he is not ready because what he wants is sex. Okay? And this is very often true in the dynamics of, of uh, especially young uh, men and women. Sex outside of marriage is, for the most part, self-centered and or manipulative. Okay? Sex outside of marriage. It's self-centered and manipulative. If it was truly for the sake of the other, truly for the sake of the other person, where you truly love the other person and you're truly committed to the other person, then you might as well get married, right? You might as well get married. There's no reason to have sex outside of marriage then. How can you make yourself one with another person that you're not committed to? That means at some point, you're gonna make yourself one with maybe somebody else. And if such is the case, then you're not really one, you're spliced, you're fractured. And sharing oneness with several different partners, thereby losing your sense of wholeness. Okay? This is very important for us to understand. Now, there is healing in Jesus' name. Absolutely. Right? And so for, for those of us who've, who've gone through this in our lives, there is healing in Jesus' name. But we need to know uh, God's design for marriage and God's design for sex. When you're in a marriage covenant, committed to one another in every way and living in love, then sex is the celebration of your oneness. It is the celebration of your oneness. And now also a reflection of your oneness with the Lord, the church. Okay? I know it's really weird to think about that, and, um, but in this way, guys... I know I'm probably not going to get invited back, all right? But in this way, um, in the context of marriage, sex can become an act of worship. It's like, don't say that. It actually, it really, it can. That, it's, it's amazing how God designed this to be. This is worship because you are celebrating oneness, husband and wife, and you are simultaneously, you are displaying and you are declaring the goodness of Christ in the church. Whether you know it or not, you are declaring the goodness of Christ and the church. Right? You are declaring in boldness to the rulers and the authorities in the spiritual realms that the marriage of Christ and the church is a beautiful thing, 
Now, where do I get that from? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is God's eternal purpose? What is his purpose? It is to, to prepare a bride for his son. To prepare a bride for his son. And then who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? Who are these guys? What's being talked about here? Angels? Demons? Right? Yes, that's part of it. But there are other celestial beings in the heavenly realms that scripture alludes to. Okay? And so, according to this verse, God wants to make his wisdom known to them in the way that we as believers live and conduct ourselves. Meaning we are put on display for another whole heavenly host to see. Did you know that? Like people are observing your life. Uh, Not people, I mean not exactly people, but other beings are observing your life. And how you live your life displays glory to God or not. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So when you display love, you are living out the image of God in you and you are putting on display God's love through you, okay? And in doing so, we are telling all the heavenly realm that Christ is worth it. We are declaring that Christ is worth it. Even if no other human being hears you say it or sees what you do, you are declaring to the heavenly realm that Christ is worth it. Christ is worth giving ourselves to him. Christ is worth waiting for. Christ is worthy of our love and our devotion. Amen? Now, for those of us who are single, you might be thinking, well, what about us? All this talk about marriage, I mean, what, well, I'm not married yet, so like, what about us? Like, and I don't know if I'm going to be married. Like, so many questions, right? Um, how can we live out and reflect our oneness with Christ if sex out of, outside of marriage is forbidden? Well, first of all, you have all of this to look forward to in your future marriage, okay? You have all of this to look forward to in your future marriage. But secondly, and mainly, as a single person, you are betrothed to Christ. You are betrothed to him, and you can experience oneness with him more directly than married people can. Okay, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28 and following. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. I would like you to be free from concern, verse 32. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, an unmarried man. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided I want to do this for God, but I got to do this for my wife. And, you know, like, like, uh, and, you know, you want it to align, but it doesn't always feel like it's aligning, right? Likewise, uh, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay? So, um, 
as a single person, you are betrothed to Christ, and you can experience a oneness with Christ at a different level than married people can. And that's not to be taken lightly at all. But there's also another expression of your singleness that married persons do not have, and that is related to the above. Married people are only committed to one. Okay? Married people are only committed to one. But singles, you can be committed to many. Okay? To many. You can pour yourself out to many people minus the sexual intimacy. Okay? And I'm sure you observe this. Right? As soon as a single person gets married, suddenly they don't have any time for you. Right? Because they are committed to one. Whereas single people can be committed to many. Okay? And there's a tremendous uh, privilege in that. And this reflects Christ's love for his bride, the church, which is comprised of many. Right? The church is comprised of many, whereas the married person reflects the singular aspect of Christ's love. In other words, the married person reflects Christ's exclusivity, while the single person reflects Christ's inclusivity. Okay? And neither is better than the other. Okay? Both are good. Both are needed. Now, having said all that, the implications for this reality of Christ and his bride are not applied only to us in our state of marriage or singleness. It also applies to us as persons who comprise, who make up the church, who make up, as persons who make up the body of Christ. This all applies to us individually and individuals who come together to make up this church. And specifically for you, as a merging of two congregations into one, you have a special opportunity to make the manifold wisdom of God known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. You have a special opportunity to do this. Okay? This verse, which I just quoted again from Ephesians 3, is preceded by Paul's explanation in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, of Christ's unifying work of bringing two races together into one new humanity. Okay, if you read that passage, you'll see this. Namely, the Jewish race and the Gentile race are brought together through Christ to form one new humanity. Okay, it is a work of unity that Christ accomplishes. And so anytime the people of God come together in unity, and particularly in feats of unity, this is a great feat of unity to come together like this merger between SIBC and the Way Church. It is a great feat of unity. It is wonderful. Okay? It, it's hard work. But this gives glory to God. As I mentioned before, it reflects the oneness of Christ and the church. It reflects that oneness. But it also gives glory to God because the only way, and this is the application point for, for all of us here, okay, as the two churches coming together as one. This gives glory to God because the only way to truly come together as one the only way for this merger 
to truly happen is to do it the way that Jesus did it. And that is through submission. Submission. Mutual submission. The hardest thing for pretty much human beings to do, right? Because that's what Christ did. Philippians chapter 2, right? Christ came down. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, right? Laying down his life for you and me. He achieved unity through his own submission. And he calls us to do the same. When we do it his way, it declares that his way is good. And it declares that his way is right. It declares that he is good. It declares that he is righteous. And it works against the spirit of the enemy. It works against the tactics of the enemy, which is what? Divide. The enemy always wants to divide to get you thinking about what you want and to not like what they want, right? And to point fingers and just divide. That's the work of the enemy. That's the tactic of the enemy. But the spirit of God in us leads us in unity. But the way that we do it, the way that we engage it is through submission. Submission the hardest thing for us to do, right? How else does one reflect and live out oneness with Christ than by loving one another in mutual submission? After all, if you cannot submit to one another, how can you say you submit to God? Can you? Can you say, I am one who is fully submitted to God if you don't submit to one another? Well, there, there's a passage that actually refutes that, that mentality, 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, they cannot love God whom they have not seen. Right? We know this verse. It's a principle here. You can't say that you love God if you don't love your brother or your sister. Why? Why can't I? I mean, I sing my worship songs and I love the Lord. I thank him every day. I praise him for what he's done for me. But man, I can't. I just, these people are kind of annoying. Right? What's the disconnect? The disconnect is I'm not a loving person. I say I love God, but I'm not a loving person. The quality of love has not overtaken my life. And thereby, I don't reflect God. Same thing with submission. I can say I submit to God. I'll do whatever he says. I'll do what he wants. But if I don't submit to others in my life and others around me, then I'm not a submitted person. I'm not a submissive person. And and we hate that word. We really hate that word. But submission is actually strength. It is strength. Because Christ did it. Right? When you choose to submit, it is the greatest display of strength. Because only strong people can choose to submit. Right? Weak people can't do that. Weak people say, no, I ain't gonna submit. No, no way. Weak people can't do that. Strong people 
truly strong people, they can, and they do. So it's actually strength to submit. This is what God calls us to, and this is what honors him. And so, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This gives him glory. This builds up his church. And this becomes your spiritual act of worship, actually. That Romans 12 uh, reference, right? When you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, you lay it all down. You submit to one another. It gives glory to him. This is your worship. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.